0: Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. Alright, we'll grab a Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, and in case you use one of our Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 1016. It's been a little while since we started this series, so I thought I would take just a moment Uh, to remind us, or to orient you, in case you weren't with us back when we started, of of why I think 1 Peter is so important. And there were were three reasons that I shared back in week one. The first is because Peter has a lot of challenging things to say, uh, things that we need to hear, even though we might prefer not to. Uh, Secondly, because he clearly demonstrates how the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and then also thirdly because he teaches us how to suffer as Christians which are all three things that the church in America today desperately needs to know more about. And so as we continue this morning Peter's going to come back around again to give more instructions about our life together as a membership of the local church. And so we're in 1 Peter chapter 4 and we're going to pick up in verse 7. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So last week, we looked at the importance of having the right perspective, of, of arming ourselves with the same mindset that Jesus had as we faced persecution in the process of living in obedience to the Lord. And now as we pick up again here in verse 7, Peter moves on to give a series of practical instructions and commands uh, to to give order and and to describe the way that our life should should, uh, come together as a local church. And he starts off by stating, the end of all things is at hand. Now when Peter says that the end of all things is at hand, he's often thought to, to be saying that the end of the world is about to happen. And sometimes people will state the obvious and point out that it's been 2,000 years since Peter wrote that, and we're all still here. And so this is a reason not to believe what the Bible says, because it doesn't know what it's talking about. But I don't think that's actually what, what Peter is saying here. I want to give you two reasons why I don't think that's what he's saying before I explain what he is saying, at least what I think he's saying so first of all, I don't think that Peter is saying that the end of the world is necessarily going to happen soon, because as we've already stated many times, Jesus very clearly indicated that nobody knows when the end of the world is going to happen. So it would be very odd for Peter to attempt to claim knowledge that Jesus has clearly said nobody actually has. But then secondly, I don't think that that Peter means for his readers to think that the end of the world is about to happen, because the things he's about to call us to in this passage— don't really make sense for people who are about to get zapped up out of the world next week. Instead, as I think we're going to see, these are things that should characterize people who are buckling up for the long haul and and, and living life together until Jesus does return. So if that's the case, then what is Peter saying? Well, when he talks about the end, he, he's using a word that can be used in a, in a temporal sense in, in terms of a, a measure of time, but, but he can, it's also often used uh, to refer to a goal or a purpose. And while those two things can be connected to each other, I think the emphasis here is on the end goal of God's saving work through Christ. And so if you go all the way back to the time of creation, literally in the beginning, and then to Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden, through the gradual working out of God's plan of redemption through the covenants with, with Noah and Abraham and Moses and then David, to the time of the exiles and the eventual restoration, and then finally to God's establishment of the new covenant through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that, then we are now in the final stage of that process of redemption and the end, the culmination of all things, is, is the only thing that's left to happen when, when Jesus returns. And so if that still sounds confusing, let me, let me try to give you an illustration. So you, you could say that it's the ninth inning. And because it's the ninth inning, that means that the game is almost over. Right, There are only six outs left. But that doesn't necessarily imply that the game is going to be over soon. Right? If you've watched much baseball, then you know there are all kinds of different factors that can cause any given inning to be stretched out into a very long period of time. All right? Hits, walks, pitching changes, reviewing a play, calling time, arguing with the umpire, fans running on the field, rain delay, all of these things and, and more can make an inning drag out all while the game is technically almost over. Or you might have reached the last chapter of a book, and so you could say that the end is near. But as it happens, the last chapter might end up being the longest chapter in the entire book, so that it actually takes more time to get through that than any of the other chapters. So we're talking about chronological time versus sequence of events, and obviously those two things are almost always going to be related, but they're not the same thing. And in a similar way, we are at a point in salvation history where where God has made salvation from our sin possible by trusting in Jesus and what he has done to save us. And and now the only thing that that is left to do is for Jesus to return to execute judgment and make all things new. That's it. That's all we have left at this point. But in between those two points, we've, we've got work to do regardless of how long it ends up taking to get from point A to point B. All right, we've been given a great commission to make disciples of Jesus among all nations of the world, and Peter's point is that in this last stage of God's redemptive plan, we need to be intentional about making every moment count. And we can't just float through life on autopilot because there's too much at stake, and this reality is the foundation of everything the New Testament calls us to, like the commands that Peter gives us here in this passage. And so the first command found in the second half of verse 7 is, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So Peter expects us to pray. And if we understand and appreciate the significance of the moment that we're in, then, then we'll be driven to pray because we need the Lord to empower us to live out the things that he's called us to do. We need Him to to protect us from the dangers that come through temptation and suffering. We need His forgiveness when we fail in these things. And we need Him to provide for us daily. And the primary way we we express our need of these things, and the primary way that the Lord grants them to us, is through prayer. We need to pray. We need to pray individually in our personal lives, and we need to pray corporately as a church. And as much as I have enjoyed our July fellowship nights, I'm looking forward to getting back to our regular Sunday evening routine of Q&A time and prayer meeting tonight. I hope that you'll join us for that. But here's the thing. If we're going to pray effectively, then Peter says we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. We've talked about these qualities in the past. And that self-control refers to the ability to act in ways that are consistent with what God has called us to do in his word and, and to not be driven or controlled by sinful desires and motivations. And sober-mindedness refers to not having our judgment impaired by any type of ungodly influence, whether that would be a, a substance or our emotions or another person or false teaching or, or whatever the case may be. Right, this command in verse 7 calls us to maintain clarity in our perspective on life in line with God's Word and to fight against anything that would distort our ability to think or act accordingly. You see, the thing is, if, if we fail to be self-controlled or sober-minded, then we'll find ourselves distracted when we come to prayer. Or it may be that we neglect prayer altogether out of a, a sense of guilt or, or shame. Or even if we do uh, spend time trying to pray, we, we may find that our prayers are hindered because of the unrepentant sin in our lives. And So the end of all things is near, so we need to be able to pray effectively. And now Peter is going to continue to give us instructions further as we move on to verse 8. So looking at verse 8, Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And so, as we pick up again in verse 8, Peter moves on and says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now, you will remember, because we have said it so many times before, that from a biblical perspective, love is not primarily an emotion or a feeling, love is a commitment. All right, love is a commitment to the well-being of another person that makes us willing to sacrifice for their benefit if that becomes necessary. All right, that's what we're being called to here. And by starting this command with above all, Peter emphasizes that this commitment to one another is of utmost importance. And as always, when we find one another commands in the New Testament, we are reminded that we're dealing specifically with the community of the local church, right? That's who Peter is writing this letter to. So it's not that we can't act in these ways with other people as we have opportunity, but we have a particular responsibility to act in these ways to the fellow members of our local church. And love, we see here, is vital to the health of a local church. And then in the second half of verse 8, Peter adds that it's important for us to love one another since love covers a multitude of sins. And when he says that love covers a multitude of sins, he's not not saying that in the sense of concealing or hiding sin so that it it can continue to be practiced undetected. Instead, what he's, what he's talking about is, is a love that, that covers over, or, or that uh, refuses to be sucked in to uh, offense and to conflict. And, and it appears that he's actually drawing from Proverbs 10:12, where Solomon writes, "Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses." And so the contrast there is that hatred looks for opportunities to have conflict whereas love looks for opportunities to diffuse it, to, to, to not have conflict. In other words, love leads us to overlook offenses whenever possible. Just, just don't worry about it. To forgive offenses when necessary and to make every effort to maintain our relationships with one another. All right, anytime we are in close community with other people, there are going to be numerous occasions for us to hurt each other, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Right, but love calls us to do whatever we need to do to work through conflict and to come out stronger on the other side of it than we were before we started. All right, not to become bitter, not to begin working to avoid each other, not to go find another church where people won't hurt me, but to be reconciled in the same way that God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now, of course, sometimes there are actions or attitudes that that rise to a level or that occur in such a pattern that that does require some type of formal intervention. We've discussed the process that the New Testament gives us for engaging in that before. But most of the time, that's really not the case. Most of the time, if if we disagree about something or when someone says or does something that hurts us or when we experience a, a personality clash we can really just cover that in love and move on, right? Love calls us to have this commitment that I'm not going to allow this to disrupt our fellowship. I'm certainly not going to allow this to disrupt our church as a whole. I'm committed to you, and I'm going to love you. And then in verse 9, Peter adds an additional command when he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling." And now, essentially, hospitality is simply making other people feel welcome. It's opening up and sharing your time and resources to bless others. And as I was thinking about it this week, I came to the conclusion that we are really good about showing hospitality in emergency situations. Right? When there's been a, a disaster or, or a tragedy of some kind, then, then we pull out all the stops. We set up a meal train, and you can come take a hot shower at my house. Whatever it is that you need, we've got you. All right? But, but the, the tone of Peter's words here, however well we respond in those situations, it, it indicates that hospitality should be a regular rhythm In the life of the church that's not just reserved for emergency situations. I think that the assumption that Peter has behind this call to hospitality is that our church is not supposed to be simply a a large group of random people who all end up at the same place at the same time once a week for for some kind of religious ceremony. We are very much a spiritual family. The, The church should be where the majority, not all, but the majority of our deepest relationships are found. And that should be expressed through practicing hospitality, through doing life together. And there are all kinds of different ways that you can do this. We can have people over to our homes for a meal. That's a very natural form of, of hospitality because I have to eat anyway and you have to eat anyway. So how about you come over and we can eat at the same time together and we can refresh and encourage each other through fellowship. Or you can also include other people in your family activities. Call someone up and say, hey, we're going to go see a movie later this afternoon, and we'd like you to come with us. Or or we're going to be playing board games and having snacks later on today. Why not come hang out with us? Again, opening your life up and making others feel welcome and included. There are all kinds of ways that we can do that. Now, when Peter calls us to do this without grumbling, that's the catch. We have to recognize that there could be a temptation to to extend hospitality somewhat begrudgingly. The reality is that hospitality may require a little bit of extra effort. It may impose on our schedule. It may require a bit of extra money. It may expose us occasionally to awkward moments. Uh, There there are any number of ways that this could be costly on some level, and in our natural self-centeredness, we may find that to be burdensome. We don't like that. We we push against that, right? But Peter is calling us here to be intentional about thinking of how we can be a blessing to the other members of our church through hospitality. And so as we think through practicalities, I want to throw out some semi-random thoughts just to help you get a handle on what we're talking about, because I think that undefined expectations hinder progress and growth because it just seems overwhelming. I'm not exactly sure what to do here. So so first of all, recognize that hospitality is not something that has to happen every single day or or even every single week for that matter. A great way to start would just be to look to plan one occasion per month where you can involve another family or another individual from our church. Start small and go from there. Secondly, Understand that hospitality doesn't have to be expensive or fancy. You can get some frozen pizzas at Walmart and make some Kool-Aid. If you've got kids at home, understand nobody actually believes that your house looks perfectly tidy and clean all the time anyway. So don't worry about that. Don't don't allow that to stop you. Uh, Of course, we today have an advantage that Peter's original readers didn't have and that we have a church building that we can use. You can exercise hospitality by using the building and simply being the person to organize and initiate it, All right? Organize a meal or a dessert fellowship or a play date with the kids. And then third, keep in mind that sometimes hospitality means inviting people to come to us, and at other times it may require us to go to other people. As I, as I think about it, it, it occurs to me that some of the members of our church who would most benefit from hospitality are our shut-in members, who can't necessarily hop in a car and, and come over uh, to our house. We need to be willing to go to them. All right, so hospitality might look like uh, packing a picnic lunch and going to visit them for a while. All right, whatever it looks like, the regular practice of hospitality is important for the health and the life of the church. And in particular, I think we should always be on the lookout, especially for members who are lonely, uh, for members who are less fortunate than we are, or, or members uh, who are new and who don't have an established uh, community at this point. And church, if we take even small steps in this direction, then I believe we will see growth that will be a great blessing for our church. Now before we move on, I want to give a brief word of exhortation to those of you who might be hesitant to receive Hospitality. All right, while we have a, a natural tendency on the one hand to be self-centered and, and not want to extend hospitality, there's an equal and opposite na- uh, sinful tendency towards pride that, that is unwilling to receive hospitality. All right? And so you may say, oh, I, I wouldn't want to impose on you, or I don't have anything that I can contribute, or, or whatever the case may be, but understand that if you refuse an offer of hospitality, you are effectively preventing the other members of our church from obeying this commandment. And that's not something that you want to do, right? And so, obviously, if, if you have a genuine scheduling conflict or you're not feeling well, that's one thing. But don't simply refuse hospitality out of a sense of selfish pride. That's just as bad as not offering hospitality in the first place. So, love and hospitality are a must For the church. Now, Peter's going to continue giving us instructions as we pick up one last time, beginning in verse 10. He writes, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus. Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so as we pick up in verse 10, Peter moves on to talk about spiritual gifts. And he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And that phrase, God's varied grace, here reminds us that God has, has chosen to gift us in different ways. right, as we come to to faith in Jesus, God gives each one of us at least one spiritual gift. There's a, a characteristic or an ability that the Holy Spirit empowers or produces within us for the benefit of the other members of our church. And Peter says that we are stewards of this grace, and a steward is a servant who is placed in charge of something on behalf of the owner and who is then accountable for managing that resource well and making sure that it's used properly. And so God has given each one of us at least one spiritual gift, and he expects us and will hold us accountable for using them properly by serving the church with them. Now, this is one of the reasons why we expect our members to attend our services regularly. And that's because if you are consistently absent then you can't serve the other members of our church. And the other members of our church can't serve you. And we need each other. And this, this is one of those things from time to time, you'll, you'll hear someone uh, who will object to having to go to church and they'll say something like, well, you know, I can, I can worship God just, just fine in the same way from my fishing boat on the lake as I can sitting in a church pew. And in, and in one sense, I can't argue that. Right? You can worship God while sitting in your fishing boat on the lake. But I will tell you this, you can't worship God in the way he has, has explicitly said he desires to be worshipped while sitting in your fishing boat, because worship is not ultimately about you. It's about the church as a whole. God has, has, has given us each other, and we need each other. Right? He is, if you're a believer, God has given you a gift that other people need. And he has given other people gifts that you need, whether you want to admit it or not, whether you realize it or not. God has established his church. And so if you seriously want to offer God worship that he will approve and receive, then you need to be an active member in your local church. Then in verse 11, Peter gives a couple of, of representative examples of this. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, the Apostle Paul gives us two uh, much more detailed lists of spiritual gifts in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, and in Romans chapter 12 that kind of fill out what Peter is is giving more of an overview here. Uh, but, But this is the general division that we see here, gifts of teaching and gifts of doing. So on the one hand, if we are serving the church by speaking in some capacity, whether that be preaching a sermon or teaching a class or giving counsel to a fellow believer or encouraging or correcting when that's necessary, or even when we are singing, then then we want to make sure that we we are always communicating and reinforcing the intended message of what God has said in his word, the oracles of God. We never want to to stop short of or go beyond what we find in the scriptures. Church, we, we remember we are not here for entertainment. We're not here to get life hacks from pop psychology or to talk about whatever may sound good to us. God has spoken in his word. And our greatest need is always to hear, believe, and obey what he has said. And so the consistent message of all the ministries of our church should be nothing more and nothing less than a clear explanation and application of what God has said in His Word. On the other hand, if we serve the church by by doing in some capacity, then Peter says that we need to operate by the strength that God supplies. And if I can challenge you a bit this morning, I think that that qualifier by the strength that God supplies means that our service should take us beyond what we are capable of on our own. Peter doesn't say serve to the degree that you are capable or do what seems comfortable to you. He points us to the strength that God supplies for the task. So one of the more frustrating experiences in church leadership is when we need people to go do this or to volunteer for that And as we go around trying to recruit, we get consistent responses. I'm just, I'm real busy right now, or, uh, you know, that's not something that I'm very good at, you don't want me, or any number of other reasons why an individual can't do fill in the blank. And I want to be careful, and I want to be clear that that sometimes we may be too busy. Uh, Sometimes the, the service that is being asked for is not a good fit. Peter's not saying that we always have to do everything, but I think he is saying that there may be times where we are busy. There may be times when, when the service that's, that's needed is not in, in our wheelhouse, and yet we need to step up and do it anyway. And we need to trust that God is going to provide what we need to accomplish it in the process. Right, whether it's childcare or setting up or cleaning up, or helping with our backpack ministry, or exercising hospitality here at the church with with members and visitors, or volunteering with any of our other ministries, we need to be willing to, to step up beyond what we are naturally comfortable with, beyond our own capacity, and trust in the strength that God supplies for our service. Now, the point in all this, as we see in the second half of verse 11, is in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Working in our own strength or, or accomplishing things in our own ability and to our degree of comfort doesn't bring glory to God because we can do that all by ourselves. We don't need God to do that. But when we are dependent on the Lord and what he provides, that draws attention to him. That draws attention to his goodness to his provision, and he gets all the credit. And so as we serve in the church, whether by speaking or by doing, let's do so in a way that brings glory to God. As Peter says at the end of the passage, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Church, the Lord is worthy of all glory and honor and praise, and and in following the instructions that he has given us here, he will be glorified in and through us. And so in our passage this morning, Peter gives us a list of practical instructions and commands to guide our life together as a church family. Because the end of all things is at hand, we need to pray effectively. We need to love one another. We need to show hospitality to one another and to serve one another as we help each other follow Jesus faithfully. And so this morning may we recognize the significance of the moment that we are in and let's pursue in response fulfilling the expectations the Lord has for us as we live for his glory and honor. Let's pray together.